uh, we looked at why the resurrection of Jesus is important and foundational to our faith. Without the risen Christ, we would not have hope, we wouldn't have peace, and we wouldn't have salvation. That is why the crucifixion and the resurrection are so vital to our faith. Today we're going to journey just a little bit further into that first Easter Sunday. Most times, most Easter's, we always have sermons about the empty tomb, which is a great thing. I don't want to knock that down, but I want to try something a little different. So, we're going to jump to the, the end of the day type thing. Jerusalem reverberated with the aftershock that Jesus of Nazareth has just been crucified. This would have been national headline material, and everybody knew about this execution. Everybody had an opinion about this late homeless prophet from Galilee. His death relieved lots of people's pressures. His presence in the temple city had disrupted and traumatized their lives. They were glad he was dead. There was no more trouble now. They could go back to their normal life. Perhaps for once they could have a normal yearly Passover. They hadn't been able to have one since Jesus had been on the scene. But for many others, the death of Jesus meant mourning and despair. Grief flooded their hearts. But not the grief that exhibited over somebody that you'd love to die. It was more of a grief associated with a, a national hero. Because that's what they believed about him. They believed that he was the Messiah. They believed in hope and that trust that he was coming to deliver them, free them from Roman captivity, from the Roman Empire. He was supposed to conquer that. And then he'd been placed in the tomb, and as far as these mourners knew, he was still there. And there was no way to bring him back. Their hope was gone. He was dead. They were so devastated. They were in shock. And then on the third day, stories began to circulate. Some said his body was not where it had been laid. Others were saying that he had risen from the dead. People were reported to see him. And in fact, ten reports all together came in this one day. Ten reports, different reports of people who said they saw the risen Jesus. Early on the first Easter Sunday morning, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and, and then other women who were returning to the tomb. And soon after that, he showed himself to all the disciples in the upper room and then to Peter by himself. But the fifth appearance is perhaps, to me, one of the most astonishing and, and unique and interesting of all. That's the one we're going to look at today. On that first Easter afternoon, as the sky was starting to darken towards dusk, Jesus appeared to two men who were traveling from Jerusalem down to Emmaus. It was a two-and-a-half-hour journey, about seven miles. How many here could walk seven miles uninterrupted? You guys make me sick. Okay. But this was a normal thing. They didn't have Uber. They didn't have taxis. They didn't have cars. They would walk the seven miles, which would take about two hours. Now, these two were not of the original 12 disciples, these two guys, these two disciples, perhaps part of the 70 disciples who were followers of Jesus. They'd already heard the witnesses of Jesus that he'd come back uh, from the grave, but they were still in doubt. They were still sad. And why were they going to Emmaus? 
We don't know. I'd like to look. I was trying to figure out what were they doing there. I can imagine that they took the trip maybe to get away from all the stuff that was going on in Jerusalem. Uh, remember, the disciples were up in the locked upper room because they were scared. They were scared that maybe they're going to be the next ones who are going to be crucified and martyred. They could escape all the Jerusalem's hopelessness, maybe to clear their minds. Sometimes you want to go to some other place just to figure things out. Evidently, God had a different purpose in mind, for on their way they were going to be intercepted by this mysterious stranger and because of this encounter, they would never be the same again. Interesting enough, the most detailed report of Jesus' post-resurrection appearance doesn't involve Mary or Peter or any of the known disciples. It is these two that has the most detailed interactions. The two men that Jesus met on that road to Emmaus are people we've never read about before. We don't know anything about them. In fact, one of them, we don't even know his name. One is called Cleopas, and the others, as we're going to see, and the other one is never named. Two men, unknown on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus has the most profound conversation with them about the resurrection than he has had with anyone else in the history of the Bible. That grabbed my attention. And I thought, what better thing to look at on Easter? But isn't that like Jesus to do this? When he was born, he appeared to shepherds, to nobodies, and the lowliest people of the earth at that particular time. Now he's risen from the grave, and he's about to appear to two unknown people, journeying alone on the road between two cities. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to the meekest and the weakest. Now we need to remember, we all understand weak parts, right? That it's, it's lack of strength. But meekness doesn't mean wimpy. Meek means power, power that is purposely restrained. It is purposely controlled. When you put a bit in the mouth of the horse, it doesn't make the horse weak. It directs the power of the horse. That's what meek is. Jesus isn't into all the stuff that the culture of that day or today seems to be so wonderful and heightened. He's not into fame. He's not into people who are important. He is into just people, all people, especially people who are seeking the truth. And so the story here in Luke 20, uh, chapter 24, I think is one of the most dramatic, especially between Jesus and and two people who are wanting to understand the truth of the resurrection. And as I was reading this and I was looking at the commentaries, um, one of the sermons that I listened to was saying something that this is almost unfolds like it's a play. And so as I was looking at that, we're, we're going to break this down into a, a three-part act. There's going to be three major elements to this. And in Act 1, we're going to title that Discouragements. Discouragement. You can see this in verses 13 and 14. That very day, that so we know it's the day of the resurrection, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. These two men are walking along. They are leaving Jerusalem. They were discussing everything that has happened. They were discouraged. You ever been discouraged? Discouragement is made up of three things, of doubt, disappointment, 
and despair. These things all call, cause us to get even more discouraged. Doubt began on the journey for these two men. They'd heard the testimony of Mary and some of the other women, yet obviously they didn't believe it. They did not believe Jesus was alive. And of course, because of that, disappointment followed and their doubts kept growing. Look how verse 21 describes this disappointment. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, now it's the third day since these things have happened. We had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that was going to save us. Now it's been three days since he's died. All their dreams, all their future had been crucified with Jesus. They heard, I'm sure they heard Jesus say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And they're saying, yes, you are the victory. We're going to succeed and overthrow a Roman Empire through, the, through you. They believed Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And now this one that they had hoped in was dead. This one whom they invested all their hopes in had been put on a cross and died as a criminal and as far as they knew, Jesus was still dead. Despite the rumors and the stories they'd heard, their discouragement didn't stop with doubt and disappointment. It spiraled down into despair. All their hope had been abandoned. It has been three days. And nothing's changed in their minds. So as they walked towards Emmaus, they were overwhelmed with sadness. They were there without hope. That's Act 1. Thankfully, there's Act 2. Starts in verse 15, and that's going to be the dialogue. Verses 15 and 16. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. In this part of the event, another person joins the scene, and this is very peculiar. What, what caused this? Why, why did he do this? Instead of just two characters on the scene, we see three. And the plot is thickening. But this mysterious man appears in the text. He draws near, which is the New Testament expression that he was walking behind them and that he purposely sped up, that he got closer to them on purpose. Cleopas and his friend had been discussing their hopes had been dashed by Jesus' crucifixion. At that very moment, the topic of their discussion, this person joins, but they don't know who he is. What? Why? How could they not know it was Jesus? Many of you have only ever seen me looking bald and beautiful, right? When I first started here, I had a full head of hair. And then I decided to just shock everybody and shave my head. And just so you know, this is by choice. I can grow a full head of hair. It's a little thinner, but it is all there. And I shaved my head, and I came into church that day, and nobody knew where Donnie was. In fact, I was standing about this close to somebody, and I'm not going to say his name is Jim Platner, but he said, has anyone seen Donnie? I'm right here. And I'm just walking around like, wow, and people came up and, have you, oh, it's Donnie. And I get up here, and I had a sucker, so I looked like Columbo, and people went, oh, how could you not recognize me? You know, sometimes we don't catch the differences. Why was it they didn't recognize Jesus? I don't know. 
But something in this resurrected state, they were kept from seeing him. Maybe it was because they had despair and discouragement clouding their vision. They didn't know who he was. And let's listen to this dialogue, starting in verse 17. And he, meaning Jesus, said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? They stood still. This is funny. They stood still. They were walking. This guy talks to them, and it stops them in their tracks. Looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What do you say? Are you dumb? You don't know what's going on? And then he said to them, Jesus said to them, What things? Have your parents ever come up to you and says, What's going on here? Nothing. Your parents know. Jesus knows, but he's asking these questions. What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Look how they're describing Jesus to Jesus. And how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Notice in verse 21, we had hoped. That's past tense. It means they don't have hope anymore. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this has happened, since these things happened. Jesus approaches these two and he asks them, What's, why are you so sad? Cleopas responds with Jesus' questions with one of the most ironic responses of all Scripture. He accuses Jesus of being clueless. A clueless outsider who missed what was going on in Jerusalem. And I think this scene just drips with irony. Can't you just see Jesus? Why, why are you so sad? What things? These men proceed to tell Jesus what they believed about him. Still unaware, they're talking to Jesus. They confess that they believed, past tense, that he was a prophet. That's good. They, they talked about his mighty works and his words. That's even better. They described his suffering, his crucifixion, and their hope that he was the Redeemer. But they had not processed the one main thing, the one thing they needed to believe that Jesus really was, and that, that he was risen from the dead. All their hope and their dreams had stopped started falling into despair. Luke 22, it says, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. I have stopped right here based on this. I, I need to tell you something, and, and this is very important. It is possible to be a Christian and not understand the resurrection. But it is not possible to be a Christian and deny the resurrection. I want you to hear that. If you do not understand the resurrection, that is fine. You can still be a believer and a Christian. But if you deny the resurrection, you are not a Christian. Because this is the pivotal thing. That's where even these two on the road to Emmaus were. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. 
If all we have is the death and burial of Jesus, we have nothing more than a martyred good man. If you can go to any place and find the bones of Jesus and his remains, there is no such thing as Christianity. What sets Christianity apart from every other belief system in the world is that our leader, our Savior, he overcame death by his own power, came out of the tomb and resurrection, and is still alive today. That is the difference of Christianity. That is what we need to pivot our life upon. And if that is not true, then according to Paul, we are still in our sins and have no faith at all. And if you remember what we said last week, we should be pitied more than anyone else on the earth. That is why this is so important. The resurrection isn't just a nice story that we celebrate at Easter time. The resurrection is the core value of the Christian faith. If he is not risen, we are the most miserable of men, Paul said. You don't have to understand the resurrection, but you cannot deny it. Notice these two men, uh, these two disciples believed everything except that last thing. They believed he was a good man, a prophet, a redeemer, a miracle worker. Yet Jesus told his followers, I will rise again. I will rise three days later. And they didn't believe it. These two followers of Jesus did not know that Jesus had done the very thing that he had already told them. And they were discussing, they were discouraged, and they were sad. And it's interesting at this point, up to this point, Jesus is walking alongside them, and then he asked them two questions. If you read a lot of scripture, you notice Jesus asks a lot of questions. Many times it seems that when somebody would ask him a question, he would respond back with a question. He would do this to put the person on the responsive side. So why did he ask these two questions? He's trying to draw them out and help them to lead them to the truth, to where they could stand on the foundation. What does he ask? What are you talking about? What things have happened? Now, Jesus already knew the answers. What are you talking about? As I've been standing back here, walking behind you, hearing your whole conversation, what are you talking about? Well, don't you know what's happening? What things are you talking about? Remember what you're talking about. Bring to mind all these things. This is what Jesus is saying. All these things you've just talked about. Doesn't it spark something? Doesn't it make you recall anything of this guy that you're talking about? Jesus didn't just dump. He asked them questions. He didn't just dump things on his people. He's going to get to the gospel in a moment. But first, he asks some penetrating questions, gets them involved about the thinking process. And then in verse 25, remember they said, don't you know what's going on? Look what he says. And he, meaning Jesus, said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? First, after asking the question, he says, where are you looking? Where is your heart in all this? And then he starts preaching. He starts preaching to these two seekers, and he's using the Old Testament. How many of you ever heard people say, if you want to know the gospel, you've got to go to the New Testament? 
I've heard that. I think I've heard it from my mouth up here on this pulpit, in this stadium. But yet, where does Jesus go? The gospel, I want to say something, the gospel is everywhere in the entire Bible. Starting in Genesis, all the way through the end. The gospel is everywhere. The gospel is preached through all of it. And I started wondering, what did, pre- what did Jesus preach that day? It says, starting with Moses and all the way through the prophets, he started telling them all these things concerning him. Maybe Jesus did start with uh, Genesis 3.15, and where Moses wrote about the fall of mankind. And God says in that passage, And I will cause hostility between you and woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and, and you will strike his heel. Maybe he's, that's where Jesus talked about, said, Remember, Satan is going to hurt the heel of the Messiah, the promised one, but he's going to cause a crushing blow. And then he could move from there. Jesus could have talked about the sacrifices that were needed of sin and how the temple was covered with blood because blood is an atonement to show that death must happen because of our sins. He could have talked about Abraham and Moses and David and all those things, how they pointed to the Messiah. Maybe he even used one of the most beloved prophecies of Jesus in Isaiah 53. Can you imagine Jesus actually saying this? He, meaning himself, was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. How many of that, that people fit that description on that day? He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. That his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. As he's preaching all this and reciting this, can't you just see light bulbs starting to turn on and the two who are listening like, that did happen. That did happen. He goes on in verse 10. He could go on in verse 10, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted as righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Can you imagine Jesus preaching this scripture about his life, his death, for these people who he loved? 
whatever he preached that day, we're going to find it had an incredible impact on these two men. They're walking down this road, and Jesus has just finished preaching to them. And it says from Moses, the beginning of the Old Testament, all the way through the prophets. And he's telling them all the things that are supposed to happen to the Messiah, the one that they had come to believe in. The Bible says they come to a turnoff where these men are going to turn and go to Emmaus. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village which they were going, and he, Jesus, acted as if he were going further. But they urged. They urged him strongly saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. So there's a turnoff on the road here, the main road, and they're going to go to their home, and, and this guy that they've been listening to preach starts to walk a little further, and it says they were urging him strongly. Once again, this plot thickens in Acts 2, Act 2 of the dialogue, and it's finished now. Now we come to the final act of this event. This act will take place in the homes of one of these men, and we're going to call this the discovery. The Bible says that they get to the home, it's probably the home of Cleopas, they sat down for the evening meal, and there they get the discovery of their lifetime. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Man, I want to see this event. I want to go back and have this event on DVD so I can rewind it and watch every detail. I want to see as their eyes are getting bigger and they see this event. Jesus opened the scriptures to them and then he opened their eyes with the truth. He opened their minds. But it wasn't the opening of scriptures so much or even the opening of their eyes that caused them to recognize Jesus. What, look what goes on in this third act. They discovered it was Jesus, and what does he do? It had been a very long day. They had just walked two hours. Around two hours. Now, if you've walked for two hours straight, you're a little exhausted. Now, imagine that on that two-hour walk, someone's preaching to you. Now, some of you get tired just sitting here while someone's preaching. Imagine having to walk and preach and... You know, it's a two-hour Maybe it was a two-hour-long sermon. And they're exhausted there. They're emotionally spent. They've had a very long weekend. All their hopes, their dreams were dashed. They've lost all this stuff. They're, they probably hadn't slept well. And they finally urge this guy who's really kind of sparked something in them. They urge him to come to the table. They invited him. He's the guest. They invite him to come to his table, to come to dinner. And this is astonishing. This isn't Jesus' home, and yet when he sits down at the table, he takes control. When this guest is invited, he starts leading. He breaks the custom by distributing the food himself. He asks the blessing on it. He presides over the meal, even though he's the guest. He took the bread. He took the pieces. He handed it to him. And Cleopas and the other men looked down and they could see this is different. This reminds me of the Last Supper. This reminds me of all the other times we've been with Jesus. What is it that they recognized? What is it? When, when I first shaved my head and you guys heard my voice, that's when people were starting, oh, that is Donnie. Oh, he's ugly. 
Don't, don't amen that. I saw him. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they started recognizing things. Was it something in a voice that tugged at their heart? Was it when he handed them the bread that they saw the nail print? What was it that they recognized? When Jesus lifted the bread and blessed it, did their minds flash back to the many times he'd done that? When he broke the bread, did the Holy Spirit connect the Last Supper to this supper? Can you imagine their reaction? This guest is now doing this. What is he doing? That's my spot. That's I'm the head of the table. Wait a minute. And as their eyes start getting wider, their mouth starts dropping, and they're like, it's Jesus. This is the one whom we've been talking to. This is the one we just walked seven miles with. This is the one who just preached. He talked about himself, and it's all blowing up in their mind. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. He's gone. But did that just happen? Can you see the excitement? They're like, can you really imagine this? What would you be doing if you were one of those two? I, I can tell you, if it was me and my friend, I'd punch Dustin. Hey, did you see that? And then he punched me hard and said, don't do that. Did you see that? This would blow us away. This is the one we've been talking about. This was Jesus. Did our hearts burn? Look what he says. Verse 32. Then they said to each other, did our heart, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked on the road and opened and he opened to us the scriptures. Wasn't there something exciting and flashing within us? The closer we got to him, the more he exposed scripture to us. Didn't it just kind of burn within us? Right here, when I was reading that part of it this week, I remember Jeremiah 20, verse 9. That's my favorite verse in the Bible. I, I really think everybody should have a, a life verse, something that God just pours onto you, and that's this. And Jeremiah 20, verse 9 says, And if I do not speak in his name, his word becomes like a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I can't. And if I was going to summarize that, that means I'm not going to shut up about Jesus. That, that's what that verse is saying. And then, then our hearts not burn within us. As he talked to us and shared the scripture, he opened us up to the scriptures. Just the, that was the day that Jesus was into grand openings. He opened the grave. He opened their eyes. He opened the scriptures. And now he's going to open their mouths. Watch what happens. And just think about these incredible changes that these men have just gone through. Consider their feelings at the beginning of this event. Their heads are down. Their shoulders bent. They're walking like they were just working out in the garden all day. They're down. They're exhausted. They're sad. They're talking about how bad things are. And then they see the resurrected Christ a few hours later, and here's what happened in verse 33. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Time out. How far away is Jerusalem? Two-hour walk. Didn't they just do that? It doesn't say that they, let's just go ahead and eat. The food's ready. That very, they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven which meant they had to go looking for him. And those who were with them gathered, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. 
What has changed in the, happened in the lives of these two men? They endured this long, emotional, long weekend. They'd taken part in a Bible study beyond anything they could ever imagine on the road to Emmaus. And then as they sat down to eat, Jesus had vanished, and they are so energized. Forget the two-hour walk. We're going to do it in halftime. They go back without a hint of, um, of discomfort or exhaustion. And you take that pretty simply, but when's the last time you walked seven miles, sat down to eat, and then got back up to go do it again? With excitement. This is 14 miles they've walked in one day, but I think the second one was a lot different. I don't think they walked that seven miles back slumped and slow. I really see them spurring one another on, excited, saying, come on, get up here, we got to get going. They're excited. I don't think they were low and slow. And all the way back, wouldn't they be rehearsing and rehashing everything that Jesus preached to them? Right here, I was standing by that rock when he said that verse. Can you imagine? I'm taking that rock with me. i got to show them. We were right here. Remember that turn when he was talking about how the scriptures turned and we were going through here? And now that we got the Messiah, we don't need the sacrifice. We got them. We have him and he's alive. We don't have to worry about dead animals anymore because he's alive. And they started recounting that and they're getting excited and they're moving. Have you ever heard a little kid who's excited about talking about something? They keep going faster and faster and sometimes their voice even goes higher and higher, right? And then you're like, take a breath and they go, and then they go again. Imagine these two guys, they bust into the home after they find the 11. They're like, you won't believe it. And they're like, hey, we just saw Jesus. We did too. And these guys started sharing the experience and started building one another. And here's the difference. The reason why I believe their road back to Jerusalem was shorter than the journey down is because once you meet the risen Savior, everything in your life changes. If you don't know he's alive, that he has overcome death, that he is really the Savior of the world, then you are carrying the sins, your sins, as a burden on you. And that is heavy. But once you meet him, once you find him, once you encounter him, everything that you've always wanted is ready to be there through his supply. Once you discover the risen Jesus, you are invited to a new life, and that changes everything. Once you know that Jesus has taken your guilt, that He's removed it, He replaces your sin with His righteousness because that's what He did on the cross. And you don't have to doubt that it's really Him because He overcame the grave. And if He can overcome the grave, then He can take my sins away. I don't fully understand why He would take my sins away. I don't fully understand how He could have the power, but I don't have to. I just have to know He did. And in case you're wondering... Just in case you're wondering, the resurrection of Jesus is more clearly documented in both Christian and secular history than almost any other event, just in case you want to investigate that. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, broke through death on that day and lives today, or lives today as a testimony to the fact that He is indeed the Savior of the world. His life is here to give to you. He paid the price of your sins. That's what today is about. And as I was looking at this road to Emmaus, I was like, that's Easter. The greatest encouragement that you and I will ever know in our life 
is the encouragement of knowing the risen Lord. When I read this event, and I've read it many times over the years, I've preached on it a little bit, but as I was looking at it this time, I, I think there are three things I want to leave us with this morning after seeing all this. Easter reminders. Number one, and I think it's a very good reminder that Jesus always comes to us in our situations Wherever we are. He doesn't say, okay, I need you to do this, 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 this. Now I'll come to you. He didn't meet these people at the temple. They weren't in the synagogue. They weren't at the feast. He didn't make an appointment to go to their house. He caught up with them. They're already walking and he comes up behind them and then he joins them and then he leads them. He met them in the moment of their despair and grief. And there in that moment, Jesus showed who he is and by doing so, he showed what he believes about them. How wonderfully present he is. And I think that's very valid in today. I've been doing this for some 20 years. I've been watching what happens to people when Jesus gets a hold of their life. More than that, I've been watching carefully how Jesus gets their attention. Oftentimes, it's because of a divorce in their family or through the loss of a loved one, through some business or business issue or a sickness, but Jesus comes to there in the midst of their crisis and shows them who he is and what he can do. Not only does Jesus come to us in our situation, but Easter reminder number two, Jesus comes to us through revelation. Even though Jesus was present with these men himself, he could have easily said, hey, that's what some moms do when they want their kids' attention. Hey, we always snapped. And it still works today. If we snap like that, one of our boys will go, is that for me? Okay, that's what they'll do to get you. Jesus could have said, hey, that's me. Don't you see? Hello. But instead, he reveals, he presents scripture to them, something they already knew. He preached himself, Jesus, from the Old Testament. And here, and I'm here to tell you, you cannot know God you cannot ever get to heaven. You cannot be a Christian without the revelation of Scripture. Okay? You cannot be a Christian without reading, knowing, and understanding Bible. There's a reason that Jesus used Scripture to preach Himself. Without the Bible, nobody becomes a Christian. You'll say, well, somebody once told me some things about Jesus and they didn't have a Bible. Well, where'd they hear it? Probably from somebody else who had a Bible. Whatever they told you came from the Bible. This is the only God-ordained book that was ever or will ever be. Is the only word from God you're going to get that is written from His heart direct to you. It is in that book you're going to find who Jesus is, what He's done, and what He truly feels and thinks about you. And that is why He suffered and died and rose again. It's all in the Scripture. You have to have a Bible. You can't get to heaven without the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Those are two ingredients which are absolutely necessary. Now, some people have told me, well, I live a good life. Well, good luck with that one, okay? Because uh, it doesn't matter. You could be a fantastic swimmer, but try to go from Florida or from California to Hawaii on your own. Not going to work. You need help in your Lack of our lack of holiness compared to God's lack of or God's pure holiness, it's a lot bigger distance than California to Hawaii. 
We cannot make it on our own. You have to have Jesus. And you get to know Jesus through Scripture and the Holy Spirit. And the last thing, not only does He come to us in our situation through Revelation, but Easter reminder number three, Jesus comes to us by invitation. Only by invitation. Jesus was on His way down the road, was about to go right past where these men live, and He would have, but they urged Him, strongly urged Him. They invited Him. He didn't say, hey, by the way, here's your home, now feed me and I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. They invited Him. The Lord doesn't bully us. He doesn't push His way into our lives. Even though He is the risen God, even though He has the power of God residing in Himself, He does not use that power to control you or force you. He doesn't make you just do something you don't want to do without your thoughts on it. Instead, He opens His arms to us like He did on the cross, and He invites us to Him and waits for us to invite Him into us. That's how it was on that first Easter. And I want to tell you something. That's how it still is today. That Jesus is still waiting to come along the side of some of you. Saying, hey, why haven't you accepted yet? And as you ask questions about, well, I don't know, what about this? What about this? And I can just hear him saying, what about this? And he throws those questions back using the scripture. And he can help lead you to that. If you're willing. Some of you are actually willing and you just haven't urged him to come home. To come into your life. And not, what better day to do that than today? Why not invite him into your lives? To let him live with you. To be your savior. To walk with you. To let his forgiveness take the weight of your sins away. How do you know it's true? How do I know this is all real? How do I know it's relevant? Because I've encountered it. I've seen His power. I've seen His love. I've felt it and I know it. I'm willing to walk seven miles if I need to. I'll do it slower than those guys, but I'll do it. Because I know it's true. Because He came out of the grave and He's victorious over death just as He said He would. No one's ever done that. No one ever will do that. He is the Son of God. He's proven it, not just by His words, His miracles, His love, but also by His power over death. He is the Son of God who stands before us all with arms wide open saying, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, who are carrying the weight of your sins. Come to me and let me give you peace. Come to me and let me take it off and give you my righteousness. Come to me so that I can come into you and give you a new life. Isn't it time we get, what is Easter about? That new life. What a day to celebrate. This, this isn't about all the candy and stuff like that. This is about the empty grave, but more than that, the full heaven. The heaven that I get to go to, the heaven that you can go to if we all choose to do so. That's Easter. That's what these two guys got to experience, and I want to know, have you ever experienced? Have you ever walked through life and known that somebody just came beside you and they're speaking that truth, and it burns within you, and you're like, there's something there, I want to go see that. 
I've seen it. If you want to talk about that, if you want to get involved with that, we want to talk to you. Dustin and I will punch each other and say, hey, look, God's moving again. Will you do that today? Let's stand and pray. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your power. God, we thank you and praise you for the empty grave. And Lord, as we come to this time where we go back into worship, I ask that you open our eyes like you did those two men back then. Open our eyes and our minds so that we recognize your truth of who you are. That we get to see what it means to live in darkness without you and the difference of living in the light, which you are that light. God, I want to thank you so much for loving me, for loving us when we didn't deserve it. And yet you chose to. We don't deserve you, God. Thank you so much for your love. In your name we pray and we sing. Amen.